Well, old Martin Luther wasn't just dreaming this thing up about the devil and the demonic powers because you know what the Word of God says? I'm the authority of God's Word. There are demons here today like birds that are going to seek to pluck these words up. God's Word tells us that's the case. But we also know this. There are spiritual gifts being exercised in this place today. We know that takes the Spirit of God's power in our midst. We can be pretty positive biblically about this. There will be demons here today. But God will be here today as well. May the Lord move in this place today. May He move. May that one little word be spoken. Oh Lord, You can speak it even now. Go! And they must go. He can speak the word live. And you will live. Oh, isn't that not what he said? He said, there are some who are dead now who will hear the voice of the Son and when they hear it, they will live. He's not talking about those in the grave. He's talking about those of you that came in here today and you're outside of Christ right now. You say, I'm not dead. Oh, yes, you are. You are. Not in the way you may think, but there is a different kind of death that the Bible talks about. We're hoping God will bring life. So, where are we? We're we're still in Romans chapter 8. So, if you've got your Bibles, please. We use the ESV here. If you have something else, you you can read along in your translation with these or just listen to me as I read from the ESV. I'm going to read in your hearing this morning Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. We've been here for some time. Today I very specifically want us to look at verses 3 and 4. But for context's sake, we'll pick up right in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And folks, that is good news. That is good. For the law, and as we looked at, law there does not mean law like a commandment. It means law like a principle that governs. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Again, the principle of the Spirit sets us free from the principle of sin and death. And here's where we want to give our specific attention. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now most of you, most of you, know what it is to sit by the side of a campfire, right? Is there anybody here that just cannot relate to that? Sitting by a campfire at night. And if you've done it like I have, there's something that is incredibly amazing about fire. Isn't there? Have you ever tried to figure out what fire is? And you know at night you'll sit there and you'll look into those flames and they dance around. And you look at the coals and the embers and sometimes they're white and sometimes they're red and sometimes they're orange and you watch them as they, they glow. They almost pulsate as they glow. And if you've been there and you've done that, one thing you've noticed, I think of Carlos. You know, Carlos loves to make a fire. Anytime we've had a church getaway or something, you know, to go to somebody's house and have a fire, Carlos is always right there. You know, he wants to put it together. So he's, you know, he, he's prodding it. And what happens if you sit at the fireside at night and you've got this great big fire and Carlos comes along with a stick and he prods that fire? What's going to happen? Something comes up out of the fire. Sparks. Little glowing sparks. Now they come out all the time, but when Carlos comes over and you know, moves the wood around, they just come out in a cloud. Now, I don't know what you think about when you see those sparks come up out of that fire. But I know what an old, wise, and godly man named Job thought about when he saw those sparks come out. You know what he said? Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Just as certain sparks fly up out of a campfire when Carlos messes with it, so man is born to trouble. Problems. Troubles, dilemmas, predicaments, complications, bad news. Are they ever far off from any of us in this life? Really, they're not. They're always, either you're in some now, or they're always hovering just over the horizons. And that's true about you, that's true about me, and that's true about the guy upstairs in that apartment. Folks, they come at us. We have money problems. You ever had one of those? Anybody? A financial problem? Financial difficulty? Anybody who has not? Some of you children, you're in a good place because you haven't yet, but you will. But we have money problems and we have job problems and we have Car problems. Kenny, you ever heard of a car problem? <laughs> we have marriage problems. 
and health problems and housing problems. We have problems with our children. All you got to do is have children for about, well, all you got to do is be pregnant with them and you know the, the problems already start, right? We are faced by, how many of you have ever had an air conditioning problem or a water heater problem? Folks, problems. Problems, more problems. That is just the reality of our lives. And you know what? We don't like problems. We're always trying to fix and solve and mend and correct our problems. That's a reality. But there is one problem. One problem that every man has. A far more serious problem than all his other problems put together. And deep down, in the recesses of his conscience, man knows. Man knows what that problem is. You know what? Ruby and I met a man at Sutton Homes Thursday night. You know what this guy told us? He says he goes to church once a month and he lights candles. Why? Why would he do that? Because there's a faint echo that resonates within him that says, you have a problem. Some people at Christmas time, they throw money in the bucket, the red bucket, the Salvation Army. Some people walk on their knees until they bleed. You ever heard of that? Some people fast for the entire month of Ramadan. You ever hear of that? Others count beads or they burn incense. I saw that all over Thailand, in India. People burning incense. It's common among the Hindus. It's common among the Buddhists. They spin their prayer wheels. People will baptize their little babies or they'll be baptized themselves. And I'm not saying in a biblical manner. They do it. Not because they are following Christ's commandment to do so. They're doing so because they know. They know something is telling them they have a problem. Deep down inside, they know there is a problem. Every thorn, every thistle, every bee sting and bug bite is telling them there's a problem. Every time the thunder crashes, their conscience tells them there's a problem. And you know what? Man seeks a thousand different ways to silence that conscience from telling him that there is this problem. Folks, 
Every time an animal runs from you, every time a bird flies away in fear because it sees you coming, you know what that's telling you? There's a problem. Every time you go by a cemetery, every time you go by a funeral home, it's whispering constantly, there's a problem. A big problem. All around us are signs and indications and forebodings that this is true. Man knows this is true. He tries to quiet himself inside from knowing this. His problem, folks, is sin. Man's greatest and most serious problem of all is sin. Now, we have been studying the book of Romans for some time now. And one thing we all need to realize is Romans is not. It is not just some lofty book for theologians. If one thing is certain about this epistle, it is that Romans is a book that shows us what God has done to fix man's sin problem. And that concerns all of us. This is not just for certain people in some place. This is for every one of us. Everyone. Nothing could be clearer than that. Listen to me. In chapter 5 and 6 and 7 and 8, just four chapters, the term sin or one of its synonyms, is used 61 times. That means God has something to say about sin right here. God is very distinctly, very definitely talking and making it a very emphasis of this portion of Scripture to deal with Sin, it's the most extensive treatment in all the Bible concerning God's remedy for sin. And I would add this here. I would add this. As Paul talks this much about sin, it is no accident at all that in these very same four chapters, the word Jesus, the word Christ, the word Lord, or a pronoun indicating Him is used no less than 65 times. There just might be some indication in that that Christ has something to do with the remedy for sin. Did you get that? I mean, does that tend to lead us to that conclusion? I hope so. Now, folks, is this important? Let's just put it this way. If you do not find the remedy for your sin problem, that is a big problem. Because a day is coming when every sin... Oh, you may have thought about them right now. You may not be able to remember the sins you committed five years ago, but I'll tell you what, there's a day coming when you will remember. There is. 
Because if you are outside of Christ, there is a day coming when every sin you've ever committed will be like a burning hot coal laid on the tenderest part of your body. Folks, that is a reality. What faces those who are outside of Christ concerning their sin is something that I cannot and you cannot comprehend right now. I cannot put this in words to describe to you the fearsomeness of what it is to meet an angry God in your sin. Because every one of them will be brought to account. Every single one of them. You may not be able to remember. You may think you got away with that thing. You may think that you're in the clear now. But oh folks, there's a day when it's all coming back. All of it. Every bit. There's only one place to hide. If you're not in Christ, you're not hidden. You're fully exposed. Oh, and that day is coming. It is coming. It is. A holy God has been offended. And it is you that have offended Him. And does man think he can burn his candles and make everything okay? Does man think that? He does. He seeks to do that. It's incredible. But I'll tell you this. By walking into church today, you're not going to take care of that problem. You can go to church the rest of your life. That does not fix your sin problem. You can own a Bible. That doesn't fix it. You can count your beads. You can say your Hail Marys. You can do all these different things. It doesn't fix it. You can speak in tongues. You can get baptized. You can have an experience. You can feel good. That doesn't do it, folks. The problem requires the fullness. I mean, this is a problem that man just does not have the capacity to solve. This requires the fullness of divine wisdom and the potent strength of deity. Do you know what Scripture tells us back in the Psalms? God has laid help upon one that is mighty. It is this mighty Christ that God has sent to deal the death blow to sin. And that's exactly what we find in Romans 8, 3, and 4. Let's read these two verses together again. Just 3 and 4. Now follow what's being said. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. So God effectually does something that the law was never effectual in pulling off. This is how He did it. It doesn't tell us yet what He did, but He starts by telling us how He did it. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I think we need to ask one question. How does this show Christ to be the mighty sin killer. What's going on in these two verses? With God's help, let's look at this and draw some things out. Now what I want to do first, I want to do three things here. What I want to do first is look at the pieces and parts and grammatical makeup of these two verses. And then second, as we're doing that, I want to also look at what some of the words and phrases mean. And then third, I want to try to wrap it all together so we get the big picture. 
So, here we go. Now, you've got to have, listen, you've got to have your Bibles open to Romans 8. And you've got to be looking at verses 3 and 4. Because I want you to be persuaded about these things from God's Word. I don't want you just to hear me. What I say is not the issue, folks. What God says in His Word is. So I want you to see this. I want you to grasp this. Well, here we go. For starters, if you're using the ESV, and most of us are, you will see a period about midway through verse 3. Right after the word do. Guys, see it there? There should be no period there. Now, no, now remember, punctuation isn't in the original. Men have added it after the fact. There should be no period there. And listen, no other English translation that I've looked at puts a period there. King James doesn't, New King James doesn't, NAS doesn't, RSV doesn't, Tyndale doesn't, Geneva doesn't. Folks, none of them. And there's a good reason for not putting one there. Because in so doing so, what the ESV has done is they've actually separated the main noun of this sentence from the main verb of this sentence. It separates them from each other by putting them in separate sentences. They get away with this by supplying words that aren't in the original. So you don't really notice it. But check this out. The main noun or the subject for you English students is God. You see that there, if you have an ESV, in the second word of verse 3. And the main verb of this sentence appears to be has done or did. I say it appears. Maya's, Maya's learning how to have a father. But you guys, the main verb here is not has done. That isn't in the original at all. In fact, if you have a New King James or a New American Standard, you will notice that the word has done or did is in italics, meaning it's added and not in the original. So if that's not there in the original, then where in the world is the verb that tells us what God is doing? Well, notice. Do you see at the end of verse 3 where it says, he condemns sin in the flesh. There is your main verb. This is the action being carried out by the subject. The pronoun he right there, right before the word condemn, that's also added. It's not in the original. So the main thought here is this. God condemned sin. He was added. Did was added. That is the main thought, the main action. Everything else in these two verses, verses 3 and 4, is simply modifying this main clause. God condemned sin. I like the old King James rendering of this text because, because for this reason. All the other translations, all the modern translations, 
add words and rearrange things because they're trying to make the two verses more readable. And that's understandable if you're trying to do a translation. They're trying to make them more fluid. But listen to the old King James rendering. For what of, of verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. You hear it there. It's more obvious that that indeed is what God's doing. Now listen again. God, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Yes, He did it by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. But the grammatical main clause of this sentence is this. God condemned sin. This is certain, folks. It's not up for debate. This is the heart and soul of what these two verses teach. God condemned sin. And here's the next thing that is certain about this text. I'm telling you things are certain because I'm going to get into the realm where maybe you begin to question and I'm going to try to prove those things as well. But these are, these are certain things. Here's the next thing that's certain. The law could not do something. Is that all apparent to you? The law could not do something. What is the something it could not do? The thing it couldn't do folks, is the very thing God did, right? You all agree with that. Well, what did God do? God condemned sin in the flesh. So if God condemned sin in the flesh, then what is it that the law could not do? The very thing God did, right? Which is condemn sin in the flesh. So the thing that the law could not do is condemn sin in the flesh. Now stop right there. Stop right here. What does it mean to condemn sin in the flesh? If God did it and the law couldn't do it, what is it that God did and the law couldn't do? You say condemn sin in the flesh. I realize that, but what does that mean? What does that actually mean? Let's ponder the three words, God condemned sin. And I think it's important right here to consider what this doesn't say. It doesn't say that Christ condemned sin. It says that God did. Now you may say, well, that's a trivia. No, it's not. Look, clearly God here refers to God the Father. Why should we think that? Because the whole Trinity is presented in these two verses. Do you see it? There is God. His own Son, that's the one He sent. And then in verse 4, you have the Spirit. Because we're to walk in the Spirit. So God here clearly indicates the Father. And notice carefully what else this doesn't say. It doesn't say that God condemned sinners. It doesn't say that God condemned Christ for our sins. Now, both of these things would be true, but that's not what's being said here. That's not the emphasis. Sin itself is the object of God's condemnation. I want you to get that. Because you can read across that 
And you can just get this feeling that it's Christ being condemned for sin. That's not what's being said. God is going after sin. In other words, the sentence of death is pronounced not against men, not against Christ, but against sin. Remember this sinister power that rules in men's mortal bodies as we saw in Romans 6? This condemnation is pronounced against sin in the flesh. Do you see what this is saying? If it just said that God condemns sin, we might take this as a general statement that God will execute or has in Christ executed sin in such a way that at some point, maybe when we die or when Jesus returns, it's dealt with. But Paul is being much more specific than that. He says God condemned sin in the flesh. This is a declaration that God did something in the past that guarantees the condemnation of sin right in my own flesh. He's going after it in here, folks. Not just in a legal manner. He's coming after it right where it dwells. In such a way that its power will be destroyed from dwelling there. This is a declaration of the destruction of sin right within the corrupt human nature itself. God condemns sin right in the body of the flesh. Not just to deliver the Christian from it at death, but to deliver him from its power in this life. Listen to Paul. You guys know this. Romans 6.14 Sin will have no dominion over you. Why? Why will it have no dominion? Because God condemns sin. That is sin's death sentence. God condemns and kills sin right in the flesh. To break the power of sin is to kill sin. Thayer's lexicon says the word condemn here means that God deprives sin of its power in the human nature. Breaking the deadly sway just as the condemnation and punishment of wicked men puts an end to their power to injure or do harm. You realize what that's saying? Yes, condemnation may be a legal declaration of your death sentence. I heard of a man that was just put to death over Thursday in Huntsville for the murder of three people. You know what? Way back when that man went to court and his condemnation came down... Death. You know what? That declaration of condemnation immediately took away all his power to kill anymore, did it not? It's the same thing here. Yes, it's a legal declaration against sin, but in God making that and condemning it, it no longer has the power it had to injure and do harm. The emphasis is... Remember, the emphasis is not that God condemned Jesus. As true as that is, the emphasis is that God condemned sin in the flesh. Now, you can already see, you can already see that I believe in the flesh refers to that place where sin is being condemned. I take flesh here to mean the fallen, sinful nature of man. In fact, 
if you have the NIV, you'll see that it indeed says that very thing. It talks about that sinful nature. I believe this is saying that God condemns sin right where it dwells within man. Now, now folks, listen. The reason I'm emphasizing this is because I don't believe this is saying that God condemns sin in Jesus' flesh. Now, that is true. Indeed, it is true. But I don't believe that's what's being said here. Here are just a a few reasons why I think that. For one, in Romans 7 and 8, the two words, the flesh, are used 13 times besides right here that we're looking at. Every time it's used to indicate the fallen sinful nature of man, not the flesh of Christ. Paul is preparing us to receive these two words in that way. Second thing, this says God condemns sin in the flesh. It doesn't say in Christ's flesh or in His flesh. The generic tone here seems to indicate flesh in a general sense, not the flesh of Christ individually. And then think about this, third. What couldn't the law do? The law could not condemn sin in the flesh. Well, you see, if you make that out to be Christ's flesh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to say that the law couldn't condemn sin in the flesh of Christ. But to say it couldn't condemn sin in our flesh makes a whole lot of sense. And that where it couldn't, God could and did condemn sin in the flesh. Folks, taking the flesh here to be man's sinful nature fits so well with the context where we repeatedly have had this come at us again and again in Romans 7. I mean, Romans 7, 5. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. You see what you've got? You've got sin in the flesh with the law there and it can't help. It only arouses more. You see 7.14. He says, of the flesh, slave of sin. The law is there. It's spiritual. But you know, Romans 7, the guy can't do any good. Constantly doing the evil that he doesn't want to do. In, in 7.25, he says, I would, with my mind I serve the law of God. With my flesh I serve the law of sin. There you've got it. Law of sin in that flesh. You've got the law there. But as we've seen in Romans 7, all the guy did was the things he never wanted to do. You see, folks, that's the idea. Sin dwells in that flesh. Faced by law can never help a man. Never. That's what the law could not do. It never did it. That's what Romans 7 throws at us again and again and again and again. You got sin in the flesh and the law never, never, never helps. No matter how much I know it, no matter how much I desire it, it never helps. I just keep on doing the bad, the evil. I practice, as the NAS says, practice evil. So, and, it, it, and it, furthermore, this fits so well with verse 4. It just, it just fits like a glove. God condemned sin in the flesh. Our flesh, Christian. 8.4 In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us 
Do you see the correlation between in the flesh and in us? God condemns sin in us, that is in our flesh, in order that in us we would become those who uphold the righteous requirement of the law. Now again, we need to stop right here and think about this. Let's read that first part of verse 4 again. It says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now some might say, hold on. Hold on just a second. Some of you might take this to mean that Christ fulfilled the law for Christians when He obeyed the law perfectly and died as the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Someone might say that in Christ, we are perfect with His perfection and in Him, we're pardoned by His blood. And in that, in all that He has done, we legally, it can be said of us, we have fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. And folks, of course that is true. I believe with my whole heart that's true. That is foundational for everything. But, I don't think that's the point of verse 4. This verse does not say that the requirement of the law is fulfilled for us. Which is true. But that's not what it says. It says the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. And then Paul immediately and specifically focuses on our walk, not on our legal standing, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Listen to me. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Paul gives us reason in the book of Romans to take this statement exactly as I'm saying. Exactly. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10 will not let us get away from viewing the righteous requirement of the law as an actual righteousness that we live out. Please turn, turn there if you haven't already. I want you to read this with me. Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled Fulfilled the law. You have the same wording here. Fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the command. Now I want to just ask you a simple question. Does verse 8 here command us to love? I just ask you that simple question. Does it command us to love? It's commanding us not to owe, but rather to love. So yes. And the one who loves has done what? Fulfilled the law. Paul is here commanding. He's expecting. He's anticipating that these Roman Christians will actually love and in so doing, they will fulfill the law. Is, does all that make sense? It is expected. Now, let me wrap this all together. Go back to Romans chapter 8. 
I want to give you the basic picture here. And we could have looked at a lot of different places. We could have gone to Galatians 5 and looked at the fact that, again, love is viewed as this summing up of the law. And there are a number of places we could have looked at to, to really draw that conclusion home. But here's the basic picture. The law could not condemn sin in the flesh. Why not? Because it was weak through the flesh. The law simply could never get people to keep the law. No matter how much the law said, thou shalt, it never produced in anybody the ability to do what it commanded people to do. Never. It couldn't because it could never do the one thing that was necessary to produce righteousness. It could not condemn sin in the flesh. It couldn't, it couldn't do anything. Folks, this is the whole connection with Romans 7. The man in Romans 7 could never do good. That's what he says. 7.19 says it. He never did good. He did bad. He did the evil. Only did evil. Why? Because the law was always too weak to help him. It could tell him what to do but it could never help him do what he needed to do. Did the guy in Romans 7 keep the law? No. He said. He couldn't. He didn't. He, tr he wanted to, but he never did. By Paul's own admission, the evil he didn't want to do was what he kept on doing. But God, on the other hand... Condemn sin in the flesh with such power and authority that it frees us to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Isn't that exactly what Paul said way back in chapter 2? Listen to this. You don't need to turn there, but listen to it. Romans 2.13 It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Listen. That is not just a theoretical statement that that would be nice if that were possible. What he is saying here is, yes, I realize we are justified. God justifies sinners based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ and based on His atoning work. But there is a day when we will come to stand before God and you will be justified or condemned in that day, folks, based on your works. The Scripture teaches this everywhere. The reality is, if you have been justified by the perfect life and death of Jesus Christ, you know what happens? You are set free from the law of sin and death. This law of the Spirit of life becomes operative in you. It is such a reality because God has condemned sin in your flesh and set you free in order that you might become those who fulfill the law. And as Romans 2.13 says, the doers of the law will be justified. Don't run from that. Don't fear that statement. That 
folks, is a blessed reality. What that says to us is that God will make you into such. Is this not any different than we heard way back in the, when the new covenant was given and prophesied about back in the Old Testament? God said this. God said in a legal fashion, I will forgive all your sins. But he also said this. I'm going to put a spirit within you, a new spirit. I'm going to put a heart in you, a new heart. And I am going to put my law upon your heart and you will keep them. All we see, folks, is Paul repeatedly telling us over and over that God is fulfilling the very covenant promises that he gave in the new covenant. Don't fear this. Don't say, oh, no, this guy's preaching that if you do good works, that's how you earn merit with God. I'm telling you this, that's a lie right out of hell. Every bit of merit that we have with God is based on the work of Jesus Christ. But God's work in saving us is so manifestly powerful. He condemns sin right in our flesh, right in its seat. And he sets us free, folks, that we become those who, as 1 John says, the law is no longer burdensome to us. We t folks, the path to law keeping is not lists of rules and laws. Because they by themselves only arouse more sin, as Romans 7, 5 says. And 7, 9 reiterates. It is life in the Spirit. That's the reality. That's what this is all about. God mightily turns us into doers of the law. I mean, folks, this takes us back all the way back to Romans 6, 1. Back in 6.1, Paul asked this question. Do Christians then continue in sin? And I just say this. How in the world can you continue in sin if God Almighty condemns sin in your flesh in order that you might bring forth this righteous fulfillment of the law? You, don't you see? You can't. You absolutely can't. True Christianity is an unleashing of the almighty power of God into your life in such a way that sin, right where it seeks to dwell in that body of flesh, is condemned. God smites it right there with a sentence of death. So look, I mean, what, what this comes back to over and over is, Christian, you have every reason to believe that God is going to give you the grace to keep His law and to love men. That's basically the summation. Loving others. You have every reason to believe that as a Christian, God is going to so work in your heart to put to death that sin in your flesh to release you to fly like an eagle, folks, in the freedom of loving God and loving your fellow man and fulfilling the law in so doing. And it's also a warning to any of you that claim to be a Christian and you look at your life and you realize you have no inclination to keep God's law. You have no inclination to love others. You are selfish and self-serving. Don't come in here and tell us you're a Christian. It doesn't fly, folks. Because this God condemns sin in the flesh. Now, if you come in here and you say, well, that describes my life, but I don't claim to be a Christian, but I certainly am looking for some way to be delivered from this, then this has given you great hope. Because right here is where salvation is found, folks. This is our hope. Let me make one thing absolutely clear as I wind this down. It cost an awful price 
to make God's people into fulfillers of the law. Taking some old, selfish, wretched fool or some pathetic, filthy whore and condemning sin in their flesh and turning them into law-doers and man-lovers did not come cheap. God did condemn sin in the flesh. And He did it at a high cost to Himself by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. The eternal Son of God who was always beside His Father, daily His delight, rejoicing always before Him, was sent robed with flesh. So like ours that Paul calls it sinful flesh. Yet Christ was so perfect and without sin that Paul has to draw back from that and not just say sinful flesh, but he can only say the likeness of sinful flesh. For sin. Do you see those two little words? For sin. I look at those and I understand that in the same way I would understand a big brother who said to the playground bully, if you touch my sister, I'm coming for you. Likewise, God, He set His attention to sin. He says, I'm sending my own son for you. He's coming to get you. He's talking to sin. Christ is the sacrificial offering that dooms sin. And by the death of Christ upon the cross, wearing the likeness of our sinful flesh, Christ paid with His life. Folks, when He paid with His life, He unleashed an explosive power. We're talking the power of resurrection. The power of the Spirit of God. If I walk in that Spirit, folks, I will not walk in the flesh. I will not walk in the power of sin. If I walk in that Spirit, that Spirit, I'm walking in that law. Remember the law of the Spirit of life which sets me free from the law of sin and death. I am free. There is power that Christ has unleashed by His death. It is a power of glory. This glory shines throughout Romans 6, 7, and 8. Sin will not have dominion over you, Christian. I can remember one time seeing... Maybe some of you have seen this. Old Stonewall Jackson. You know who I mean? He told his men... As they charged upon the enemies, you yell like furies. And I've got that image in my mind. I'm thinking, Christians, you make up a Christian army. You are in battle. You battle sin. You battle the devil. I can tell you the same thing. You yell like furies and charge in against the enemy. The, the beauty is, folks, God has condemned that sin in you. He has condemned it there. And this is all for the glory of Jesus Christ. Brethren, we must fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Listen to this. Just in closing, listen to this. 
Romans 15, 18. Paul says, again, we're in Romans. I'm trying to put all this, pack all this together in a snowball for you so that you see this overriding theme throughout the book of Romans rests right here. Paul says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. What has Christ accomplished through Paul? What is it this mighty Savior is doing? He brings the Gentiles to obedience. That's what He does. This is another way of saying He is making them fulfillers of the law. And at the very end of the letter, Romans 16.26, the command of the eternal God is to bring about the obedience of faith. This is the same way He started the letter back in Romans 1.5. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. Do you realize what that's saying? Paul says, look, Jesus Christ has done something through me. What He's done through me, says in Romans 15, He's brought the Gentiles to obedience. You know what it says in Romans 1.5? He says, for the sake of His name, it's all about bringing obedience that flows from faith. The obedience of faith. It's the same way He wraps up the book right at the end in verse six, or chapter 16. Folks, do you see the picture here? This salvation that the book of Romans is teaching about is meant to ultimately conclude in your obedience, your fulfilling of the law. That is what brings glory to Christ. That is what Paul alone would boast in. That is what we do for the sake of His name. Listen, Christianity that is devoid of of people who love. People who are fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law does not bring glory to Jesus Christ. It's a farce. It is not God's salvation. It's short of the real thing. And we can look at Christianity and we can call it a whole lot of things. But I'll tell you one thing it is, folks. True Christianity makes people righteous. It makes people good. It makes them law keepers, law fulfillers. It makes them unselfish. It makes them humble. It breaks their pride. It makes them into people who care about others. It makes them into people who are constantly filling their life with doing good and speaking good and acting good and living good. Folks, the Bible talks about God making people righteous. As I said last week, yes, God saves people in their sin, but He does not leave them there. He condemns sin in the flesh. Ah, we get to move on now. We're going to next week, Brother Charles is preaching. Now we can fly. I felt so bound by these four verses just because they really are difficult. And I mean, if, if you have 20 different commentaries on Romans, 
you will read 20 different opinions about what these first four verses mean. But all I want to do is, folks, just look at the word as it pours off the pages of Scripture here. Does God give us reason to believe the fulfilling of the law in us is about us becoming righteous people? I think Paul prepares us for that by giving us, you know, the instruction that he does in Romans 13. It seems pretty plain, fulfilling the law, equating to love. Yes, he expects that Christians will do that. There's no question about it. As you walk in the Spirit, the deeds of the flesh, folks, you've got to be putting them away. Otherwise, I mean, as we move into eight, it says if, you, if you're not doing that, you don't belong to Christ. You don't belong to Christ if you don't have a Spirit. And if you do have a Spirit, you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. There's no question about that, folks. This is reality. If you belong to Jesus Christ, what is it? Galatians 5, 24 says you will be putting to death the, the passions and the desires of the flesh. There's no question about it. It's a reality. Folks, there is a law of the spirit of life that can set you free. And God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to accomplish this for sin. That is your big problem. Oh, did we not look at He's a friend. He's a brother. He is our big brother. And God sent Him to take care of our enemy. Your greatest enemy is not the devil, folks. Your greatest enemy is inside you. And praise the Lord, we as Christians, God condemned that sin. You know, it's like that condemned criminal that hangs on the cross. They're not dead yet, but it's crucified. There's just a few things in the New Testament that talk about the fact that there's something that's been crucified. May God quicken us in this path. Amen. You are dismissed.